0: and welcome to the Energetic Principles podcast. I'm your host, Melissa LaFera, an astrologer, tarot consultant, all around creative from sunny San Diego, California. And this is the 95th episode of the podcast airing the week of June 29th, 2020. Now, I'm pleased to bring to you my interview with Columbus, Ohio astrologer, tarot reader, and witch, Michael J. Morris, who will join me in a discussion on astrology and feminist praxis, where Michael and I discuss the multitude of layers that live behind the term feminism and how this concept can be interconnected within the astrological practice. Now, Michael unpacks the definition behind feminism, stemming from their educational background based in Black feminist perspectives, and highlighting the need to have an intersectional approach and awareness to this topic. Now we dive into ways to cultivate connection through thinking things together that appear to be separate, making this a rich talk for practicing astrologers and dabblers alike. One of my favorite talks so far, actually, so I do hope you enjoy. Now, a fabulous way to show appreciation for this podcast and my astrological efforts is to come on over to my Patreon page where I do a weekly Patreon-exclusive astrology forecast or audio cast, which includes seven days of detailed astrological transits and what's going on in the sky, along with a few tarot polls and our Animal Ambassador of the Week. And then I end the show in a segment called Ask Mel, where I encourage patrons to ask me questions or I riff on my thoughts for the week. And so if you are interested in signing up, I have new episodes that launch every Sunday at midnight Pacific time, uh, and that starts as little as $5 a month to get access to four to five weekly forecasts, along with early guest interviews. So when I do these podcasts, they come out on Patreon first, so you get to hear them before they reach the public. And I also have Astro Storytime episodes that are part of my Patreon too, that if you sign up, you have access to those as well. So to find out more about that, you can come on over to Patreon at patreon.com backslash energetic principles. Now, you can also show appreciation by making a one-time donation over at Mel's Tip Jar, which is on the front page of my energeticprinciples.com website, or by booking a personal consultation with yours truly, all of which can be done directly through my site. Now, one more announcement before we get started here, I am uh, very delighted to announce that I will be joining 15 fellow female astrologers in an upcoming summit hosted by Christina Caudill of Radiant Astrology, titled The Astrology of Purpose and Power. Now, this summit will be held the weekend of August 7th through 9th, and just in time for Leo season, when our heart is online and our empowering cat energy can roar. You know, if I think of power, I definitely, Leo definitely gets in there. So for more on this event and where you can sign up to join us, I will be posting regular updates on Instagram at Energetic Principles. So stay tuned for that to find out more. All right, so who's ready to hear all about incorporating feminist praxis through astrology? Such a fascinating topic. I really do hope you enjoy it. So now, let's meet our guests. All right, I am so happy to welcome this week's very special guest. We have Michael J. Morris with us here today. Thank you for joining me, Michael.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I'm very excited to dive into the topic on uh, that's being presented today, but before we get there for you know the listeners of the podcast that have not heard of you before, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh who you are, where you come from, what you do, you know all that.
1: Thanks, yeah. Um, I do a lot of things i am I primarily think of myself as a witch and an astrologer and a tarot reader but I'm also a full-time academic. I'm a professor um, so I do a lot of writing and education and facilitation Um, and then I have a lot of my really a big part of my background is in um, dance and movement practices and embodiment practices. Um, I've been a yoga practitioner for a long time and a teacher for I guess I've been teaching yoga for about 12 years um, along with movement practices like um postmodern dance and Boueau and um, um, healing modalities like Reiki. so there's there's a lot of embodiment. there's a lot of critical thinking, there's a lot of reading and writing. Um, and then there's a lot of spending time with the earth and the sky, which I really um, map onto these adjacent but um, sort of mutually constitutive practices of being a witch and this this ongoing, Uh, cultivation of belonging and kinship with the earth, Mm -hmm. um, that, that really, um, is simultaneous to and, um, entangled with the ongoing cultivation of belonging and kinship with the sky, which I think of as a big part of why I practice astrology. Um, and so, as I said, I'm a professor and then I'm also a consulting astrologer and tarot reader. I have a consultation practice called Co Witchcraft Offerings that I launched in January 2019. So like about a year and a half ago. Um, And that's been growing steadily alongside my teaching and facilitation work. Um, Yeah, that's like where I am now. That doesn't really tell you (laughs) much about where I've come from. But that's, that's, that's who I am and what I do right now, I think.
0: Hey, well, all those steps before leads to this moment that is now, so i 'm sure that there are a lot of um, things you can take out of that. I love the that you brought up because i 'm always talking about on the podcast the connection of Mother Earth and taking care of her and just being involved in you know the environment and it's a very important topic for me. So I like that you brought that up just in general, uh, thinking about the earth meeting the sky too. And, you know, when we think about myths just in general, the idea of Gaia and, you know, Uranus together, and which is the birth of everything when we think about myths to begin with. Um, so, yeah, anyways, I support that message. (laughs) So people get out there, hug a tree, connect, ground your feet, you know, get your, like, if you really want to get to yourself, that is a great starting point. Because when we are disconnected from where we come from, you know, completely. And I know that you're a big proponent of just embodiment in general. I mean, that's a place to start is the connection with nature. And maybe, maybe, maybe just maybe that will be a podcast in itself that I can invite you back for at another oh, time.
1: <laughs> I would love that. I mean, I, um, yeah, intimacy, connection with the earth, with the sky. Um, my My doctoral work, my PhD, my dissertation is on ecosexuality, um, specifically looking at the entanglement of sex and sexuality with um, ecology, with ecosystems, with the more-than-human world. Um, and so that's, I mean, that is a topic I can literally talk about for, for hours and hours and hours. Um, But it wasn't, it actually wasn't until I was done with my PhD program and started um, my job as a professor and teaching courses in ecosexuality that I started making this connection between, I spent so many years thinking and writing about this intimate connection with the planet, which of course is always about embodiment because um, we're, we are part of the earth and I mean that in a very physiological, biological, ecological sense. Um, And so when we uh, shift our awareness, open our consciousness to the fact that we are part of this planet, um, that we're always in a dynamic exchange with what we think of as the earth and what we think of as our bodies. Um, it wasn't until after grad school that I started um, understanding something similar at play with why astrology had become so important to me. It was like a thing I was doing on the side during grad school, like reading Um, books wherever I could really started sort of starting in a sort of autodidactic self-taught astrologer way and then gradually started taking online courses with um, folks like Demetra George and online workshops with Chani Nicholas and then eventually Chris Brennan's massive Hellenistic astrology course Um, and then a lot of workshops and courses with Kelly Surtees Um, and so eventually starting to develop more connections with teachers but through all of that, there was this question of like, why astrology? Why, is it, why has this ca- captured my attention so much um, when I already have like so many other interests? What is it about astrology? And there's two answers to that. And one is this idea of connection and kinship and intimacy um, with that which is more than ourselves mm. and how much more of ourselves we come into connection with when we connect with that, which is bigger than us with the sky, with the cosmos, with the the planets, with the movements of light. Um, But then also there was a really important realization moment when a loved one asked me like, why, why is it that you think, why do you think that you can, why do you think it is that you can get lost in astrology for like four or five hours at a time? Just like Pouring over charts or reading um, whole books sometimes in a day. And I thought about it um, and it it occurred to me that in some ways uh, paying attention to astrology is like watching the oldest, slowest dance I've ever seen. Mm. And I spent so much of my life dancing and making dances and watching dances and writing about dances and interpreting bodies in movement in time and space in relation to one another. And that moment I had the realization actually brought me to tears, this realization that I'm doing the same thing I've always done just at a much bigger scale um, that exceeds my, the scale of my life, even the scale of my species in all directions, that this thing that I'm witnessing and making meaning of the movements of the planets in the sky, I'm only gonna ever see a small part of it. Um, And this idea of this like vast um, dance or performance that's unfolding in ways that I'm never going to witness, but can see it in this, see in these small ways and that that can somehow make our lives more meaningful. Um, Yeah. I think that's a big part of how I came to recognize that astrology was significant to me.
0: Mm. I mean, I might cry with that explanation. (laughs) It's the great cosmic dance. That's it's it's so true and it's ongoing and it will be forever going and we only get to witness just this small slice of it i mean even as astrologers and especially since i'm very interested in mundane astrology we i you know i can pull it back as much as i'd like i can pull it forward as much as i'd like will i ever get the true you know meaning of it being live, living within it seeing the motions but it's absolutely a dance and It brings so much meaning to life because you can see these overarching themes and movements and timing and you know, as with Capricorn planets, (laughs) the Moon, nonetheless, and the Cancer, you know, timing is just everything. And as you know, with dance, timing is everything. Like it's just, it's just this flow that is never-ending, but so impactful in everything that we do as people. And like you said, as as the world and in the in the ecosystems and every little aspect of you know existence is basically tied up in these movements, and it's it's almost too much for the mind to take in sometimes. But when you have the need, we were talking about this in the pre chat. Just the how we're both like excited and get up every day to learn, basically like what. Are we going to learn today? You know, and that is kind of the beauty of astrology and why you can get lost in a book for five hours or a a couple charts is that it's just, it's ever expanding and unfolding before your eyes as your mind just you know has like like just explosion after explosion of just understanding or you know creative connections being put together and I actually know that's something that we're probably going to touch on a little bit later in in the program today but you know the whole topic of this episode might change if we don't get (laughs) if we don't get to the this is speaking to the mutability here today um but but the topic at hand for this particular podcast is, uh, uh, as Michael uh, helped me with a, uh, an actual title because you know I like to title things, is astrology and feminist praxis, and I am so excited to hear what you have to share about all of this today. Um, and so what we're going to do is I'm just going to lead in with some questions and basically let Michael just unpack some things for us, because I know there's a lot of knowledge to share. And you might be like, feminist praxis, astrology, what what is this? What are we going to talk about? Well, you're going to find out here. So basically the, the starting point uh, that we came to here is, you know, let's start by unpacking the word feminism itself, because I mean, a lot of people can be like, what, what does that mean? I think I know what it means. But, you know? So can you give us a little background on the definition of the term, maybe, or and, and what that means to you within your own idea and practice of feminine, feminism?
1: <laughs> yeah, certainly. Um, and I guess one of the places I would start with that is there are many feminisms, um, which is something that Angela Davis says in an essay called Feminism and Abolition, um in her book freedom is a constant struggle um that in fact like feminism is going to be understood in many different ways by different people with different social locations and different um uh agendas different things they're trying to accomplish in the world um and at the same time bell hooks makes the point in um her book feminism is for everybody that if feminism can mean all things to any person then it ceases to mean anything so there, have to, there we have to be able to ground what is feminism in some sort of specificity or particularity? And so I guess what I'd like to trace is some of the understandings or definitions of feminism that are most useful to me as a feminist, but also as someone who uh, teaches in a women's and gender studies program who teaches feminism to other people, um, which feels really Uh, important in this moment that we're living through, where there's Mm -hmm. global uprisings for justice and liberation happening all around the world in response to the ongoing um, killings, the ongoing murdering of black and brown people, um, specifically in the United States by um, police and white vigilantes. And so we're seeing this moment, these calls to justice. And I actually think that feminism is part of this. Mm -hmm. um, That's part of what has led us to these moments Um, And so definitions, Uh, Bell Hooks says that feminism is a movement to end sexism, sexist exploitation, and oppression. Um, And really throughout her work, uh, Bell Hooks is a Black feminist scholar, writer, theorist. Um, She really insists that feminism must involve critical engagement with other things like race and class and sexuality and all the ways in which systems of oppression operate on and through our societies, um, but also on and through um, ourselves, that we are part of these societies, that these systems of oppression, which is a word we use a lot in terms of thinking about how things like racism or sexism or misogyny or homophobia or transphobia or ableism, um, or class-based struggles, that these things are not reducible to individual actors or individual acts. It's not simply that someone does some th- a thing that is sexist, but they, they do something that is part of a larger structure um, of sexist oppression of women and films in our, in our society. Um, and the same with racism, that racism isn't simply, you aren't simply a person who is or is not racist. We are in a society that is racist. We are saturated with racism. And so everything we do, actually, I mean, in this particular moment that we're living through, I'm having this conversation a lot right now with mainly white folks who want to, I think we ha, I think we as white folks have this impulse to want to not be the bad guys. And so there's like this instinct to like, well I'm not racist. And I've just been trying to invite myself and more of the people who I'm in contact with into the realization like we're all racist because we're living within a society that is fundamentally racist. And especially if we are white, we are actively benefiting and privileging from that system, whether or not we wanted to, whether or not we asked for it, which means we are racist and also in our racism, we can be actively engaged in anti-racism as well. And all of this relates to feminism too, because feminism um, is not reducible or cannot only be um, concerned with the struggles of um, women, the oppression based on sex and gender, um, because because no one's lived experience is reducible to those experiences alone. Um, and that's really, so Bell Hooks is someone who gives us ways of thinking about this. I also am really um, fond of a definition of feminism that Angela Davis, who's another black feminist philosopher gives. Um, She writes, feminism involves so much more than gender equality, and it involves so much more than gender. Feminism must involve a consciousness of capitalism. It has to involve a consciousness of capitalism and racism and colonialism and post-colonialities and ability and more genders than we can even imagine and more sexualities than we ever thought we could name. So in other words, while moving to end things like sexism or misogyny or the marginalization of the feminine, um, while that might be at the origins of feminism and must continue to always be a part of feminism, as soon as we pursue those, that work of justice, as soon as we um, work to end those forms of oppression, we find that we are already engaged in other systems of oppression as well. We have to be able to address how all of these things connect and relate to one another Because I think it was Fannie Lou Hamer said, nobody's free until everybody's free. So what would it mean to work for a society in which women were finally liberated if black women were not liberated? Mm -hmm. Because black women are still suffering under systems of racist oppression um, or in which trans women are still being murdered at escalating... um, Uh, rates, I'm looking for the word that's not pandemic, but is um, epidemic, Mm -hmm. like epidemic proportions that trans women, especially trans women of color are murdered. What would it mean for women to be free if trans women are not free? Then that means women are not yet free, which means we have to examine all of these interrelated systems of oppression in order to adequately pursue something like justice and liberation. Um, And we can think about that in a lot of different ways. We could look at it in um, like practical terms, like something that comes up a lot in the courses I teach her is like the wage gap, the fact that still, still, hang on, deep breath. <laughs> still in 2020, women make 81 cents for every dollar that men make. Um, and this is like um, aggregate, not not necessarily um, these same um, people in the same profession, in the same position, with the same education, yeah, it gets more complicated to track. But women overall make 81 cents for every dollar made by men. But if we look closer at the data, that number drops to 75 cents for on the dollar for Black women, for Indigenous women, for Latinx women. So it drops to 75 cents to, for every dollar. But then if we start looking at the experience of transgender people, for whom unemployment is three times the rate of the general population and close to four times the rate for transgender women of color, then we might start to understand that this wage gap is not um, simply a problem for one population. Mm-hmm. That even within that population, there are multiple experiences of um, privilege and oppression inside the category of women. And then we start thinking about things like undocumented workers or disabled people or uneducated people. And and we start to get closer to realizing like, oh, this whole enterprise. And by enterprise, I guess I mean like white settler colonial imperialist capitalism, like this whole enterprise that's um, built on, literally built on uh, exploitation, by which I mean hundreds of years of the enslavement of African and African-American people, but also the almost total exclusion of women from owning property, from education, mm-hmm. while simultaneously um, demanding, requiring reproductive labor and domestic labor from women for which what, there was not compensation. And so then we start to see how when people like Angela Davis and Bell Hooks invite us into this perspective that feminism is already must already be engaged in all of these other forms of analysis and critique and critical consciousness and resistance, that it's not abstract. This is like as soon as you start looking at any one of these um, quote-unquote issues, we start to see that these systems of oppression are intersecting or, or interlocking. Those are terms um, intersection, intersectionality. term that was introduced by a black feminist legal scholar named Kimberly Crenshaw. And that also informs my understanding of feminism because she's a legal scholar and she was trying to account for the fact, um, this was in 1989, she wrote an essay called Demarginalizing the Intersection of Race and Sex, a Black Feminist Critique of Anti-Discrimination Doctrine, Feminist Theory and Anti-Racist Politics. And she was trying to account for the fact that in multiple contexts, in multiple situations, Black women were refused by the legal system to bring a complaint of discrimination because they couldn't make a claim based on race, because Black men had access to what they were arguing they were not given access to, and white women had access to what they were not being given access to. And so the legal system was incapable of recognizing real tangible material discrimination at the intersection of multiple Um, axes of oppression. And so Crenshaw introduced this term, intersectionality, for understanding that there is oppression and marginalization that happens not in an additive way, like there's a little of this oppression and a little of this oppression, but there are things that happen only at the intersections of multiple marginalized identities and experiences, and that this is something that is lived and embodied. It's not an abstract thought process. This is people's real lives that she was trying to account for, And it actually resonates with a perspective that was introduced um, over a decade earlier. So Crenshaw introduced this term intersectionality in 1989, um, but there was a group of black lesbian feminists that formed in the 1970s called the Combahee River Collective. And they wrote a statement, a kind of manifesto in 1977, in which they introduced their their perspective of their politics. And they're actually the group that introduced the term identity politics, which has gotten, unfortunately, pretty mired in the last like (laughs) 50 years. We have not done well by that term. But what they were trying to introduce with the term identity politics is that most of us are motivated to action, to do something about the world, because of our lived experiences of identity. So identity politics isn't a way of dismissing someone's politics, which is what it's become. Like, oh, that's just identity politics. It's like, well, no, our identities are how we live in the world. Um, And they argued before the term intersectionality was even introduced, which is an important term, but they argued that um, for what they described as interlocking systems of oppression, that they as women, that they as lesbians, that they as Black people experienced interlocking oppression. And all of those things had to be uh, confronted, um, considered, um, addressed for something that we would call feminism. And this is really in response to decades of a feminist movement that was primarily led by middle-class bourgeois white feminists who imagined that women's struggles were all identical to theirs. And really it was due to Um, Black women in the 1960s, 1970s, and 80s um, identified as third-world women um, and women of color, critiquing this assumption and saying, no, in fact, our lives are quite different from your lives. Mm -hmm. And for your feminism to truly advocate on behalf of all women, we have to start to account for the ways in which our lives are different from one another, which actually does some exciting, really exciting work for even like, what do we mean by women? What do we mean by the term woman um, if there is very little, if any, shared experience between all people who are known as women? What does that term even come to mean? And I think where I am with that right now, this is sort of where I've wrestled with that in my own feminism and in my own teaching of feminism is the more students I talk to, the more... um, women and femmes who I listen to in terms of experiences of oppression, that seems to be the common denominator of women, is something that almost all women have in common, is that they've experienced some form of sexism, some form of misogyny, some sort of gender um, discrimination, gender-based discrimination. Um, And all these other variables of life seem to change, but it So then then it starts to make sense, like, why does the category or the identity of woman become the impetus for a movement for justice? Because perhaps the category of woman has been used as a site of oppression for so long that that is mm, where we mobilize some sort of response or resistance. And I guess the last thought that I, was, that I would say that i don 't know if I can give a definition of feminism <laughs> without acknowledging this is that for me it 's deeply embodied that um, that feminism emerges from the conditions of the body, our bodies, our lived experiences, and as I was preparing for this. Um, for this discussion, I was trying to track like when did I start thinking that, and where did I get that idea from? And partly, it's like, well, I think so much of my work is in embodiment that it it wouldn't make sense for me to have a feminism that wasn't accounting for the body. But I also want to credit what I think was a major influence that I that's not identical to feminism, but it's an adjacent movement called the healing justice movement um, that's really emerged, I think, in like since like around 2010, something like that. Um, that was co-founded by Kara Page and others, uh, collaborators and other organizations. Um, and part of what the healing justice movement um, insists upon, this is from an, uh, an essay that Kara Page and Susan Ratho wrote, um, that healing justice refers to an evolving political framework shaped by economic ra- and racial justice that recenters the role of healing inside of liberation that seeks to transform, intervene, and respond to generational trauma and violence in our movements. And then later in that essay, they say, there is nothing we talk about in movement building work that is only a, quote, issue. These are things we have experienced. Our bodies, our communities, our memories all carry um, carry all of the times when we experience or witness violence, systemic oppression or displacement, oppression, disrespect, and marginalization. Uh, they, they write, everything we want to change in the world around us also exists right here in our bodies. Mm. And if we think about that, like gender-based oppression, this is an embodied experience. Racism, this is an embodied experience. Homelessness, this is an embodied experience. Um, not having access to food, hunger, these are embodied experiences. Reproductive health care, transgender health care, these are embodied experiences. So there, the, the reduction of these things to just like political issues in a way that's separate from the body um, reduces our capacity to attend to the um, urgent vitality of these issues. That, by which I mean vitality, like liveliness. These are matters of life and livability. -hmm. At the scale of embodied people's lives, and I think that if and when feminism starts to lose track of the body, we've lost track of some of what it is we're struggling for. Um, Yeah, Mm. well, I I
0: have so so many thoughts have gone through my head on on all that, but. To play on what you're saying right now about the idea of in, embodiment within the term of you know feminism and, and the feminist experience. I mean, even when I think of you know something like tarot and when yeah. we're looking at uh, you know the cups and water and and uh, earth and you know pentacles, these are the these are form because you need that receptive receptacle. <laughs> to create what is the actual, you know, body. And so it does have, it, I have so many thoughts. <laughs> this is where it's all going to get jumbled as I try to get it out. But that's where my mind originally went um, and why the form is so important. And when we're soaking this all in, right, because that's the whole idea of the feminine energy is it, it takes in, it it absorbs, it um it's permeated in, in many ways. And and because of that, it has that creative freedom. And then when you're talking about oppression and like this hierarchy of oppression, basically that you laid out before us that, you know, we think, oh, but just these people are oppressed in this way or just this way. No, they start to layer upon one another to, you know, really, uh, just take different levels of what that can mean for different people. And that seems very, uh, masculine in the sense of oppression, because, you know, the masculine will will press, it'll push, it will, uh, the, the logic, right, the logic of the legal system, like, okay, well, we have these laws in place, because this is going to help, you know, the, stem for this person or this will stem for this person, but then where does it meet? You know, because we have to be more open. We have to be more creative. We have to like, and that's just the energy of the feminine, you know, the feminine to me is that creative void, that form, that open basket that can hold anything that is actually does have like intense freedom because of its just openness that is there versus always trying to push towards something or box in or actively, you know, like, I don't know, that's just where I'm going in these like bigger overarching (laughs) themes, themes of that. But, um, it, it takes a toll on our experience as, as people at different levels, obviously, as you've, um, you know, so eloquently, uh, broke down for us. Um, but these are all things to think about within. And that's the thing, too, when I started uh, looking into the um, Kombahi, is that how we say it?
1: Kombahi River Collective? Kombahi yeah.
0: River Collective. I like, Some
1: what? people say Kombahi. Um, I, I, I have heard it most often said Kombahi. But,
0: yeah. um and I was like, "What's this?" Like, cause I had no idea. And then I look it up, and I'm like, "Okay, so here we see this uh, feminist movement that's like, wait, hold on. You know, you haven't uh, you haven't brought in uh, you know the plate of black women, the plate of lesbian black women. And, you know, so we started to see this unpack um, in ways that, because you know, when you think about, I because the idea of uh, you know, f- feminine uprising to some extent was obviously when we start to pull back, you know, a century plus ago as we we're trying to get voter rights and, you know, just some simple things like that. But, you know, that, that was, that was a white woman's plight, <laughs> you know, and, and, and people and even maybe white rich women that yeah. had the luxury to go out and, you know, march in the streets or have, and so, And that happens with any message, really, you know, who has the luxury of spreading the message first. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're kind of noticing over time uh, based on, you know, freedoms, civil freedoms and liberties, um, you know, wealth to be able to. Because if you have to take care of how many kids and and make a work a job and that, you know, are you going to be marching on the streets? Are you going to be getting your word out there? Probably not because you're not going to have the time. You're not going to have the energy. And, and, and that in itself is, is a luxury and a privilege to be able to spread your idea of <laughs> how the world should look. And so that and that's really like inspiring right now. And, you know, a blessing, a blessing of the pandemic, I guess we could say, is that everyone has this time out to be like, oh, wait, I don't have to go to work right now. <laughs> or I, I finally get a break, even though obviously there's all these other things going on that I'm sure are weighing on a lot of people, but this like blip in time and responsibility and this like, this in its own self is an intersection, you know, that has opened up for people that might not normally be able to say anything or have the collective power to get together now are afforded that through this almost like switching of timelines that I feel like are going on right now in 2020. So anyway, those are just some some of the thoughts that came into my mind within all of that.
1: A couple of those, uh, that sparked several things for me too, and I'll try to make them quick so we can move on to some other points. But um, I totally agree in the sense that much of what has motivated heteropatriarchy is this despisal of the kinds of Um, feminine qualities that you're describing in terms of receptivity and holding um, and the creative energy there. And that those aren't, those are not uh, essential qualities that belong to any particular Um, biological assignment of sex, or even any particular gender role, that actually something that's quite important, I think, for people to understand about feminism is that people who are assigned male or people who identify as men suffer under heteropatriarchy as well, because they also are alienated from their own receptivity, from their um, capacity to feel, their capacity To understand themselves as receptive or creative, Um, and that this goes across all gender experiences. So that's another way in which feminism starts opening up. That it's we can we can see how this oppression is concentrated so intensely in the lives of women, Um, and then and also we can recognize that men and 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 uh, masculine of center folks who may also benefit from. The institution of patriarchy also suffer under it as well because they they all um, are also alienated from these qualities um, that we've been t- we've all been taught to despise that we have to unlearn so much of our conditioning of this internalized misogyny and sexism whether we're women whether we're trans whether we're men um, and that's some, and that's tr- work that we're all doing at, on some level. Um, and then the bit about um, access to getting the word out, and if you are if your life is occupied doing these other things, then you actually don't have the opportunity or the privilege to be. Marching in the streets, even in this moment in the pandemic, that while some of us have, while most of us, many of us have a lot of extra time. There's a lot of people who their hours at work have doubled because mm-hmm. they're essential workers in some way. Um, that they they don't ha- and because they're in contact with people who are a high risk population. I'm thinking about like healthcare professionals, but also people who we previously did not consider essential, and now we're realizing that actually the person who stocks the shelves of our grocery stores and delivers our food is way more essential than we thought they were um, because we were biased by an imperialist capitalism. And now we're recognizing, yeah, that their essentialness um, and also the ways in which that essentialness in this period gives less access to be doing certain forms of activism, certain, for, certain forms of, um, of active involvement in justice movements in the ways that we think of as like visible marching in the streets. Um, It made me think this is not something I have written down. I can't say, I want to say it's it's by Audre Lorde. She says this in either um, The Master's Tools Will Never dismantle the Master's House or Age, Race, Class, and Sex. Um, But she's speaking at a women's studies conference and she's talking about the glaring absence of black women, women of color, working class women. Um, And she says says something along the lines to this large group of white women, um, educated white women, while you are here Spending days talking about feminism and the women's movement, who's watching your kids? Mm-hmm. Who's cleaning your house? Who's taking care of the things that you don't want or don't have to take care of because you're here? And she said, "And probably it's a woman of color, and probably she is a poor or working class woman." And that that moment of like really crystallizing this this uh, material difference in how people's lives unfold also does something to open up these categories. I think, um, mm. I had a passing thought about something Patricia Hill Collins said about epistemologies of connection, but I think maybe that'll come up later.
0: <laughs> well, I do want to say real quick where we're, cause we're go- going down this wormhole that, um, I was just thinking about the other day when, uh, just talking about, I'm like, oh, you know, so many problems in the world. But I just started thinking about, you know, classism and the idea of pay. Um, And and this goes into what you were saying earlier with, you know, what uh, women make on the dollar. And as we went down that tier that you were giving us, and even right now with that example of the people that are, you know, all of a sudden these essential workers and you're like, wow, look how essential you are. Uh, and, and how, and this all stemmed actually from, I've been doing like French lessons on Duolingo for the last, like I'm on like a 450 day streak right now. Um, But there was one story in the, um, in the like they give you little stories in french and it was about this little girl who uh, was eating with her her papa in the restaurant and she was saying oh when i grow up i want to be the waitress and the, and the the guy the dad was like oh no honey you're going to be you're going to have a far more important job and make more money and blah 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 and she was just like she was like she's like, but it is an important job, blah, blah, blah. And so he gives her a hundred dollar bill to go pay the waitress, like a $20 tab. And she comes back and he's like, where's the change? And she's like, you know, I, I, I tipped her because she has a very important job. And, and in that, in that actual story, like it brought to my mind, I'm like that, what we deem as important in society, because in any type of community, in any type of like, and that's what this all is. We are in this community that is called humanity. <laughs> you know, they all these pieces, all these components, all these jobs are equal in their own way, in the way that we've compartmentalized them, especially by pay, by education, by, you know, it doesn't. We don't need the person that you know doing like just some random tech work of like you know that has this high degree that's getting paid probably one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, or the CEO that's making God knows how much. It, when we realize you know the people stocking the food at the grocery stores, the farmers that are out in the you know fields giving us the food that we need, the healthcare workers, just all these different the 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 nannies taking care of children, so that other people. These are all crucial parts to the system itself and the fact that they are and I think that's one of our biggest problems that you know we can put all this aside when we well I mean all, you know, obviously when we think of sexism, racism, all this is very important but this is actually kind of coming more into the capitalistic structure yeah. and the way that we have um, and that has really you know uh, pushed all these other issues into the corners that they're in um, and why oppression is so strong is because of these disparaging <laughs> components. And I'm, I'm just, I would love for, a, you know, a, a silver lining of this actual pandemic to maybe assess that more because just because someone works at McDonald's or just because someone is stocking, you know, like those things are just as important in some way, especially when we're talking about food and caring for the, back to the embodied experience, right? Because even to exist on this planet, you know, we don't need maybe theoretici- theorists like doing high level space stuff versus someone who's putting some food in your belly. You know, that's going to yeah. keep you alive. So anyways, that's kind of one of the, I, I was like, that's the solution to everything. And I'm like, <laughs> it's very, uh, you know, socialist in, the, in, in its concept, but not because of like any political, it's just like literally common sense. It's like, it, they all are important and they all tie together to make this system run, you know, equally. So,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I have So many things I could say about that, and, um, but I think you said it great. So I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna let it be. We're gonna right.
0: let it roll off here. Yeah. So okay, well then that brings us with with all this talk. Um, since we have more of a background on the concept of, of yeah. feminism and its varying uh, forms, um, you know how are how are we able to connect that? With astrology, you know, and particularly when we're talking about consultation work, because obviously, you know, both you and I are uh, consulting astrologers, and I'm sure there's uh, others that are out there listening, um, but also people that consult their own charts and do their own work. Um, And so, how how can we connect those two in your mind, or start to open that channel?
1: That's a great question, and and it's going to go in a lot of different directions. (laughs) Um, Some of it's going to be very, I think, very practical for people who do this work professionally. Um, But I I also want to speak to the listeners who are folks who um, are primarily reading their own charts or maybe reading charts for friends, but it's not a business in some way. Um, But I think feminism is or could be or can be active in those forms of uh, astrological practice as well. So keep listening. We're going to hopefully talk about both or all of those things. The first thing that comes to mind is uh, because of what you were just talking about in terms of Class and capitalism and these are like other modes of organizing uh, wealth and abundance and access is is how do we make our services available to people? Um, how do we make how do we recognize the system that we're living in the systems that we're living in and respond? Because I think in a lot of ways feminism is a response. It's a um a res- it's an ability to respond. It's a responsibility to the uh, response ability to the systems and the conditions in which we're living. So if that's true, and if we recognize, like, oh, it turns out the class structure that we're living in isn't equitable and it's deeply tied to things like race and gender. Um, then how do we an ability, um especially, then how do we respond effectively to that? And so some things that, that I can offer just as like, these are the things I'm working with. And I don't think they're perfect solutions, but they are um, part of how I'm trying to imagine another way um, is that since I started my consulting practice, I've worked at a sliding scale um, for everyone um, based on income inequality. And I just ask people to determine for themselves if they make more money, then pay more, pay at the higher end. Um, And I've actually had some really Wonderful clients who've even paid above the high end because they know that based on their income and their situation, that's actually not a lot of my, that high end of my sliding scale isn't, isn't a lot of money for them. And so they pay above because the idea is the people who make less money pay less. And so in a sense, when people recognize their economic privilege, and pay at the higher end of the scale or even those who have paid above the scale, they are making my services more available for the people who can't afford to pay as much. So the sliding scale, it's worked for like a year and a half of doing this um, that people are really, and I don't need like receipts. I don't need someone's tax returns. I just trust people like know where you sit and make a choice. And know that this is one way, a small, imperfect way, that we might imagine a different kind of economy working where where things are priced or made available or made accessible um, in ways that recognize our differences. That we're not all coming to these services with the same means of access. And then also I hold, I offer several, um, a percentage of the number of sessions I may have each month, which fluctuates depending on my, my teaching schedule. Um, I, o- I offer um, sessions free of charge for people of color and indigenous First Nations people. Um, and for me, that's like an act of rep- reparations, reparative justice um, of um, people of color living in this country, indigenous people living in this country, um, have endured hundreds of years of violence and oppression and harm. And if the work that I do can support them in their healing or in making meaning of their lives in, in a world that consistently sends the message that their lives are meaningless, that their lives do not matter, that their lives are disposable. Um, if anything I can do can add, um, more healing or meaning to their lives, then I want to be able to make that available. Um, and that's something that, like, I'm really aware is possible because I have a full time job other than astrology. And that if I ever shifted into astrology as my full time profession, I'd have to find another way to make that sustainable. But I do believe it's out there. Um, and I actually, had a client. It was like three months into my practice. Um, she was a middle aged white lady, um, and at the end of the session she said, I saw on your website that you do free sessions for people of color. And I wondered, could I give you some money to support that, Mm. like basically help pay for that? Um, And she just slid me a $50 bill to help, which isn't even a full session, but it, it was like, it was a gesture. And it was, it gave me a sense of, is there a way, is there a model where white people pay for other people, people of color, indigenous people, to have access to these services in a way that's not so dis- different from the sliding scale? Can the other people who have more means or who have access to systemic wealth um, help make these resources available to other folks? So that's, that's like a very, very practical, before we're even in the consulting space, we can already be engaged in feminism by addressing how systemic oppression affects the clients who are coming to us in differential ways. Mm -hmm. And then I think that once we get into the consulting space, but sort of in that realization as well, um, there's something about taking responsibility for our particular social locations, our identity, our privileges, and and also the ways in which we experience marginalization or oppression. Because I think all of that shapes how we read the chart. And if we think it doesn't shape how we read the chart, um, there's probably some work to do there um, around acknowledging or taking responsibility for the privileges um, that we have access to. Because it's probably privilege that gives us the opportunity to think it doesn't affect our work that our systems of meaning-making are not affected by white supremacy is probably an effect of white privilege, or that our systems of meaning-making are not affected by uh, this um, hugely um, inequitable class system probably means we have the financial means to not think about the ways in which our class position affects how we literally make meaning of the chart. Um, And there's been some, like... uh, really great work being done on this, on this um, topic in terms of attending to our biases, attending to our social locations and identities. And I just want to mention Diana Rose Harper. You have an amazing talk at NORWAC 2020 called Fierce Compassion, Natal Astrology as Radical Self-Care, which you can purchase from the NORWAC website, um, and it's also available for download on her website. And then she had a great discussion with Chris Brennan on the Astrology Podcast about these issues. Um, And they did a great um, process of moving house by house Mm. and thinking about how privilege or marginalization might show up in those areas. And so if people, if this is a new way of thinking of like, well, how might, how might my social location, my privileges, or my marginalization affect how I'm making meaning? Um, And this is for clients, or again, that other piece of like, even for myself, starting to pay attention to how we experience, how you and I experience the second house differently. Mm -hmm. You and I experience the fifth house differently, and so on. And we're bringing our lived experiences to how we understand the the theory, the tradition that we've inherited. Um, And so Diana's talk is a great resource for starting to do some of that work of self-awareness, critical thinking, critical examination. And ultimately, I think of it, and I I think this is part of why she calls it radical self-care, it's an act of healing. To come into responsibility for for those parts of ourselves. And then Bear River also gave a talk at Norwac 2020 called The Intersectionality of Astrology, um, which he references Kimberly Crenshaw's um, work on intersectionality in that talk. Um, And that's um, also available for purchase through the Norwac website. And it's available, I think it's available on Bear's Patreon. Um, And it's another great resource for thinking about how some of these ideas around identity and social location and privilege and marginalization affect how we practice astrology. And I think inside of that, and this is really one of the primary ways that I think our feminisms can show up in our astrology, is how we attend to difference Mm. and complexity. How do we come into our consults recognizing from the start that even if there are things we have in common, our differences are just as important, if not more so. Um, our difference is mine and yours, My, mine as an astrologer, someone as a client, um, that those differences matter, but also the differences between clients, that people with v- very similar placements are gonna live out those placements in really different ways, given the particularities of their lives and attending to those differences is part of how we practice um, responsiveness and responsibility towards um, all these different ways our lives are shaped by um, these social systems. It makes me think of Audre Lorde, who's maybe the greatest teacher on difference as a, as a topic, as a, as a lived experience. Um, Audre Lorde was a Black lesbian um, feminist, poet, writer, activist, And she writes, this is in an essay called Age, Race, Class, and Sex. She writes, quote, institutionalized rejection of difference is an absolute necessity in a profit economy which needs outsiders as surplus people. As members of such an economy, we have all emphasis, italicized her emphasis, We have all been programmed to respond to human differences between us with fear and loathing Mm -hmm. and to handle that difference in one of three ways, either ignore it, and if that's not possible, copy it if we think it is dominant, or destroy it if we think it is subordinate. And we have no patterns for relating across human differences as equals. As a result, she says, those differences have been misnamed and misused in the service of separation and confusion. Certainly, there are very real differences between us of race and age and sex, but it is not those differences between us that are separating us. And I'm going to repeat that, because when I teach this essay, the students either gloss over this sentence or they get snagged on it. Uh, it is uh, not sorry, it is not those differences between us that are separating us. It is rather our refusal to recognize those differences and to examine the distortions from which uh, result from our misnaming them and their effects upon human behavior and exception. And that idea that difference does not separate us is. Radical. I think we are so used to finding um, commonality, finding building connection through commonality, mm. or like, oh, underneath it all, we're all the same. And that is, I think, that's a violent perspective, frankly, um, because it it depends upon the erasure of our differences in order for us to be connected, and that will fall apart at some point. What if instead we were connected through our differences? differences. And I'm going to make that really practical. If I'm sitting in a consult with someone and I start talking about a particular placement based entirely on my experiences and the person sitting there is thinking to themselves, that is not how I understand the seventh house or committed relationships. And I'm just talking to them as if they are me. We are moving increasingly farther apart. We are not getting closer. We are not moving into connection. We are moving into disconnection because I have assumed we are not different. Whereas if I were to launch into a, dis- a delineation of a particular placement, I'll just stay with that metaphor um, or that analogy with the, the seventh house and started asking them questions about how they experienced this placement. What they have known about committed relationships or love or partnership, then their differences are invited into the room, get to come into the space, and we are moving closer to one another. We are becoming more connected because we're actually addressing our differences. We're moving towards more, frankly, intimacy because we're coming into an awareness of one another's complexities. And I actually think that that's another feminist practice, which we'll probably talk about um, before before this discussion is over, which is um, the co-creation of knowledge is a basic understanding of mine f- that comes from feminist pedagogies, specifically the work of Bell Hooks, who's written a lot about feminist pedagogy and feminist critical pedagogy um, in books like Teaching to Transgress and Teaching Critical Thinking, um, the idea that moving away from an educational model or a learning model in which um, there's a... Uh, situation of authority, but also um, uh, I can't find the word, access to um, ownership of um, control of knowledge production Uh, in in this model of like the teacher holds the knowledge and the student just receives the knowledge. But there's there's this unequal distribution of responsibility for knowledge production. Um, And that she argues, and then Patricia Hill Collins, who's another black feminist thinker, argues this as well, that in a feminist approach to thinking and learning and what Hillel Collins describes as epistemology and um, Bell Hooks is discussing in terms of pedagogy, rather than um, the distribution of learning being unilateral, I am giving knowledge to you, we co-create something Mm -hmm. through dialogue, through discussion. We are both active participants in the creation of knowledge. I love that you're nodding because like... (laughs) We've probably all known some astrologers that fall on either side of this. There are astrologers who will sit down, hopefully in a minority at this point in our civilization, who sit down and give the monologue. They tell you what your chart says. And I think of that as a kind of masculinist, patriarchal approach to knowledge production, Mm -hmm. this idea that I am the authority and you're just here to listen. It creates an active, passive dynamic inside the consulting space, which reproduces a kind of powerlessness, which is actually what brings a lot of people to astrology in the first place, the sense of like confusion or uncertainty or not having control of one's life, and they come for a consult, and then an astrologer reproduces those conditions by making themselves the authority which is different from a model, and this is how I practice consultation. I think a lot of people practice consulting, including my teachers, who I learned this from, I think, um, which is being in dialogue, mm-hmm. that each client is teaching me about these placements, that I'm, telling, I'm bringing my expertise, but they're bringing their expertise, their expertise in their own lived experience, which then tells me What, how these archetypal delineations are showing up in their specific particular life. And that's a very different model than saying, I'm an authority figure in this room. And rather, we are both sharing power here, shared power being a kind of fundamental, I think, fundamental feminist value rather than hierarchical value, shared power, a hierarchical power versus shared power, we can practice that. And that thing that Audre Lorde said of like, we, we have no models for relating across human difference in ways that are equal and equitable. And it's like, I think that's in many ways true in the culture we inherit. So then the consultation space could, I think, potentially become a place where we practice that, where we, we, don't, ne- we don't necessarily know how to relate equally and equitably across our differences. So then where do we practice that? Where are the spaces for practicing another way of relating to one another? And I think the consulting space is one place we can do that. I'm going to take a breath.
0: (laughs) Once again, my mind has gone so many places, so many things to share. And I'm going to second that, um, you know, the idea of prioritizing discussion and dialogue. Because you know what, and I have to I have to say, you know, I started out when in in my in my uh, beginning days of consulting, or shall I just say reading at that point, because you know consulting is consulting seems to have a back and forth to it to me, it has a more of a dialogue space, and I used to just get in there, the Mars and Gemini would just just talk and like put it, you know, but then it was and that actually didn't last long because I noticed that as I started to open up a question. The whole space would come alive, right? Mm -hmm. And not only would there, it would just be a better consultation uh, for obviously the client, but for myself, because like you said, I was learning in the process because there's so many varied. there's so many va- varied expressions of, or, or what I like to call the shades of expression of these planetary uh, connections. And then of course, when we're looking at things like rulership and all that. So, I mean, even just in general, as is, is astrology speak, if we take all the, um, kind of the, the points of intersectionality that we're talking about anyways, it, astrology has that within its own context of the dynamics of the planets that could play out. So anyways, opening that dialogue and, and having that just the, sometimes the simplest of question will just open up the space to get super creative about what could come out of it. And once again, that's coming back to the, the, uh, the more feminist approach of opening the door to responsiveness and what comes out just through your own intuition, because that's a thing too, as I think with astrology... And I mean, this might be my water planets talking, but it's like, you know, it is very much an intuitive art um, that comes through. And the only way that I'm going to get to that intuitive impulse uh, that is sparked by the planetary configurations is through the actual dialogue and the story of the people that are sitting down to share their, you know, their, their space and their thoughts and their feelings and, and who they are with me. And then that, if I'm not in that receptive space, because if I'm talking the whole time, I don't have the the space to actually receive, mm-hmm. and so that's important too. And why I think consulting, uh, you know, face to face is important because there are a lot of there are a lot of and you know I'm not trying to harp on anybody, but there are a lot of astrologers out there that solely do you know written reports or do um, you know pre recorded material, um, and I feel like that's missing an opportunity uh, on both parts to be able to, you know, get something from that. Um, The other thing I wanted to say with the differences and, like, getting caught in differences um, and trying to always find the commonality between people, it really, like... I mean it's just as simple as the you know the age old spiritual concept of the idea of the whole in needing the polarities of all differences in order to make up you know the conscious web that is all that is so to like to always try to be on the same page or to be scared of, um, you know, the differences of people and people are different. That's like the, you know, people are different in, you know, spiritually thought, uh, Creatively in the body, you know physiology, all these things we are just different on so many levels. Um, but once again, it makes up the entirety of all of that is, and so we can't discount that or be afraid of that because that is actually the magic of the of everything coming together. So those are, those are just two things. Two things I have.
1: <laughs> well, what what you just said what it made me think of is what we know from um, biological. Um, diversity is that an ecosystem that becomes more and more uniform or monoculture Mm -hmm. dies. Like we actually, we need, um, polarity, but even beyond polarity, we, we need multiplicity in order for life to flourish. Um, and what I get so excited about in consultations, but also in like in teaching and activism is where can we invite more difference into where we think there is sameness So like when I meet another non-binary person, it's like, what if from the start, I assume we did not have the same journey? What if I assume from the start that our understanding of what it means to be non-binary or trans or genderqueer is very different? Mm. And then what what if cisgender folks did that? What if men met one another, assuming that what that person understands about what it means to be a man is different than what the first one, the first man in this story. uh, knows. (laughs) And similar with women, what if women met one another with an assumption or an understanding from the start, we are different from one another, not in spite of our womanhood, but inside of our womanhood, our understanding of what it means to be a woman is different from the start and how much more connection becomes available to us if we approached one another with that sort of openness and receptivity, like you're talking about receptive, being receptive to what's different rather than, um, either repressing or ignoring that there are, are absolutely differences between us. Yeah. yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. It, well, and it makes me think too, because I, I wrote a song about this once, um, mm-hmm. that, <laughs> that, uh, uh, it's called the s- silicone life, um, which is <laughs> because we think about, you know, just the, the reproductive, of, you know, you have silicone just in our, you know, even in our phones, you know, you think of a silicone with your breasts, you know, <laughs> all those types of things. And I was just thinking about sense, th- this, re- this, um, this kind of carbon co- copy quality that, society really places on us. I mean, you see an advertisement everywhere, especially with women, you know, like uh, look at, this is the beauty standard. These are the products that you need. You're going to look, you need to look like this specific thing to be part of this thing. And then you see all these people, you know, doing whatever they can to look exactly like whatever that carbon copy is. And, and that comes down to that. I'm like, I can do a whole podcast on just marketing and advertising because that really gets my goat (laughs) is the ideas that people push upon culture that you know you this is this is how we're trying to mod it and mold it out that you need to be this exact thing. Um and I think those are the types of uh you know societal structures that are underway that hinder the mm-hmm. idea of difference. Um, yeah. And I like that you brought, I use the word polarity, but you're right. It's like, it's not just polarity. I mean, polarity is like the, 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 maybe the exact mirror image of something, but then there's all the shades of variation that make up the pie piece around the whole thing, you know? Um, and that's kind of what we're talking about here just in general today is the idea of gray area, you mm-hmm. know? And, and that is confusing. You know, people want to compartmentalize and put things in boxes. And so I can understand it because it's this thing or it's this thing, or it's maybe a combination of those things, but not too many combinations because now my brain's just, getting, <laughs> you know, but the reality is, is that everything is its own unique little slice of, of existence. And all our little slices so eloquently put together this grander, bigger Whole and that can be hard to wrap your mind around, especially when we're living day to day and we just look at something different from us. Because, like you said, uh, you know, difference really scares people. It's just a, you know, if you're not like me or not observably so, you know, that it just it can feel like a, a threat. I don't know why, but it just it's you know, sometimes that's like a conscious thing, and and part of it actually is like to me lives in the subconscious energy mm-hmm. that is swirling around too, because, uh, you had mentioned in our, you know, kind of our first talking point about, um, because of the society we live in, we are racist, Yes, you know, and, yes. and there's, you can't get around that because, and why so many people are really struggling right now as the world is blowing up in many ways from our idea of, you know, conceived normal is because, when it is this chaos, when it, it all these feelings rush up, you know, we're having this discussion as Neptune stationing. By the yeah. way, <laughs> um, it's that. You feel the undercurrent. You're not separate from it. And and that comes with feeling, that comes with the chaos of what's happening. And that also comes with all the cultural considerations that are here in this present moment, but are, have been collectively building the web of what consciousness is for thousands of years. <laughs> you know, so to think that you're your own entity and you have these and we do, we have our own thoughts, we have our own approaches, but there are these bubbling up of, you know, per you know forces that permeate us that we, even if we tried, we can't necessarily get away from because we, they're integrated and it's just part of, of who we are in the process. And yeah, that's, <laughs> yes.
1: But it makes me think of two things and one is really simple and one uh, gets back to consulting um, and feminism. But the first is, yeah, those deep unconscious conditioning. Um, and you said the thing about. Um, this impulse to categorize, but also the, the silicone life and this uniformity and the reproducing the same and the same and the same. And I think like if I trace it far enough back, I think it's the, the, the impulse and tactic of colonization mm-hmm. of a, of a, of a dominant white European imperial culture uh, coming in and eradicating anything that does not fit that norm, those norms. And so, so many of our beauty standards can be traced back to um, a dominant, upper-class, white, Euro-American, patriarchal, heterosexist um, ideal of the body, of bodies, which depended upon the eradication and erasure of anything that didn't didn't fit with that. And we all carry that. We carry that as we look at other people, but we carry it when we look in the mirror. Yeah. When we look in the mirror and say, like, I'm not enough or I'm too much for these reasons, it's like, that's colonization. That's centuries of, of destroying anything that didn't comply. And we carry that and then we reproduce it as in those moments. And I think you're right. It's really hard to become conscious of those things and to interrupt those behaviors, but I think that's the work of feminism and that's the work of anti-racism and that's the work of decolonization. um, And that's the work that hopefully people are doing around sexuality and gender and all the fear and shame that we have around anything that's not heterosexual or anything that's not part of this gender binary. Hopefully we are all in these processes of becoming more and more aware of our unconscious socialized assumptions that shape our behaviors in ways that actually are not in alignment with the world we want to live in. Mm. And one of the ways that I see that show up in in consulting is what are the assumptions that we bring in, in terms of sort of like Diana and Chris were talking about in that astrology podcast episode, what are the assumptions that we bring to these archetypes in the chart? Um, Because we're all bringing assumptions in. And I'm actually going to connect this to something that um, that I was talking about with Daniel Bernal and Drew Levanti on the Queer Skies Astrology podcast last year um, about citation and referencing, and something that Kelly Sturtevant talked about in her 2019 Norwalk talk as cross-pollination—the idea that when we're when we're when we're doing astrology, when we're making delineations and interpretations, we're drawing from other bodies of knowledge in our lives. And she used the example of gardening, like she gardens. And so then gardening becomes something that she references in her astrology. And I would argue that all of us practicing astrology carry some responsibility to not only know what are we cross-pollinating with, what are we bringing in, what are, what are the frames and the assumptions that we're drawing on, but also to be intentional about what are the frames and assumptions we want to be drawing on. It's mm-hmm. so like something that I've talked about in various contexts, I don't know if I've ever talked about it on a podcast or been recorded, is like assumptions around the seventh house or Venus, around love and relationships. And unfortunately, most of us grew up in a culture that most of what we know about love and intimacy and relationships has been shaped under the conditions of patriarchy, (laughs) And so, like, if we're not actively unlearning those things, then we are reproducing them in every consult. Every time we start talking about love and we start talking about, I don't know, I don't know what those things are. Like, finding the one or your other half or, like, someone who completes you. It's like, this is all colonial, patriarchal, white settler nonsense. So what do you want to believe about love? And what are you doing to make those references, those citations? And I mean that in our thinking, but I also mean quite literally in session. Um, I have the number of clients who've walked away with like, and said like, wow, I have a whole reading list now because I'm, I mean, sort of like what I'm doing in this, in this conversation, I'm, it's intentional that I'm actively referencing other people. So when I'm talking about love or the seventh house or Venus, I'm almost definitely going to reference bell hooks all about love, um, which is like a black feminist critique of how we understand love um, and what it might mean to liberate our thinking of love. Or if I'm talking about the fifth house and pleasure and erotic connection, I'm almost definitely going to talk about Adrienne Marie Brown's pleasure activism, the politics of feeling good, and a whole spectrum of queer theorists who have challenged our assumptions around what sex and sexuality and pleasure even mean, and who has access or availability to desire, and the ways in which especially women's sexuality, but also queer people's sexuality, but also people who are not white's sexuality, have been so controlled by this dominant culture. Like, if we're not thinking about those things actively in how we're consulting, we're probably reproducing Mm -hmm. some of those things. And that is, that's part, that's another way in which, like, well, how can we practice feminism in our astrology? It's like, well, how are you, who are you thinking with as you are making these delineations? Because I can guarantee you're thinking with someone. And that can be the dominant culture, or that can be the stack of feminist books on your nightstand, (laughs) or that can be like, Like, who are you actively inviting into your headspace so that it can come into the consulting space? And then I actually, this is like a personal priority, but it's something that I inherit from other feminist thinkers, specifically like Sarah Ahmed and Donna Haraway have written a lot about this. It matters that we reference other people in our thinking, because when we do that, it destabilizes the idea of a heroic individual authority in knowledge. That like, I could sit down in a consult and even in the dialogic space of conversation with the client, they could leave thinking, wow, Michael has all these big, brilliant ideas. And most of those ideas came from somewhere else. Most of those ideas come from these stacks of books all around me. And if I don't make that legible to people... Then I'm reproducing this kind of heroic individualism that so much of imperial colonial white supremacist culture is predicated on. When I could do something else, I could, someone could walk away thinking, wow, we weren't just in dialogue with one another. We were in dialogue with all of these other thinkers. And we were in dialogue with, you know, the sky and the planet. Mm-hmm and the mm-hmm. ancient tradition that we inherit. Like, and so if we can make more of those connections apparent, then that's what our clients walk away with. Or if we're just practicing astrology with ourselves, um, with our own charts, that the more aware we can be of who it is or where it is that we're drawing our insights, um, I think that that is a feminist praxis as well.
0: I absolutely agree. Because at the end of the day, you know, uh, whether you're the astrologer or you're sitting with the astrologer or you're doing your own chart, whatever is coming through is a collection of experience. Yes, And, you know, that is, and and sometimes when, you know, and hopefully when you're open and once again, water planets talking, you know, something's moving through you that will bring um, certain ideas to the forefront. But even then, those ideas or those kind of aha moments that pop on in are still a collection of experience because that's the only way you're going to reference is because you have a frame of reference, (laughs) you know, and and that's very important. Um, And so, yes, that's the, you know, the astrologer is not the hero, which is so funny because I, you know, I, you know, when we think about business, because obviously the Capricorn planet has to deal with some business. Um, And I think of like, what is Donald J. Miller? And he talks about his story brand, his whole story brand thing. And his number one thing is he puts it up with your, with your business, you are not the hero. The client is the hero. You know, you are the, you, you, like in the story, uh, you know, any type of just, you know, grand story like Star Wars or something like that, you, there's a problem and you're there with solutions that help fix it. So the hero can take their journey to where they, they need to go. And so I, so that's another thing too, is like kind of acquiescing because a hero is very much, a, a seems like a, a, a patriarchal <laughs> image to like that, just someone just coming on through with their, their sword in hand and we're going to conquer this thing and be the one that saves the day. Now we're going to be the facilitator and facilitators are more, you know, you move through that space, creative problem solving, asking the right questions, you know, let the, let the client, let whoever we're speaking to or the other half of ourself that's listened to our own delineations you know be be the hero in in that situation um but yeah i don't i'm i'm going off on a neptune uh station right now But no, that
1: was so important yeah
0: <laughs> Ooh. okay so all right well what haven't we covered you know uh there's what do we need to bring up at this point as we get into our, our latter minutes of the, the broadcast, Michael, can you think of anything that I know you had mentioned um, something about um, where, where did I put it? Where did I put it? Where are my notes? Oh, okay. Well, we're kind of talking about that. There's two points. One was you had mentioned uh, exploring connections that are not always apparent.
1: Ugh, yeah, we have to talk about that.
0: Okay. Get li- okay. What is that? What are, what are we saying there? <laughs> uh,
1: that is, um, I never lead with that as a, as a definition of feminism, but it's so integral to how I understand feminism at this point. And it comes from that essay by Angela Davis that I referenced earlier, Feminism and Abolition, that's in Freedom as a Constant Struggle. Um, and she writes about feminist methodologies, the idea that there are ways of thinking and creating knowledge that are feminist in, how, in the how, in the method and methodology. And she writes, feminist methodologies impel us to explore connections that are not always apparent. And they drive us to inhabit contradictions and discover what is productive in these contradictions. She writes, feminism insists on methods of thought and action that urge us to think about things together that appear to be separate and to disaggregate things, separate things out that appear to naturally belong together, end quote. And on a very fundamental level, that is one of the ways that I think that astrology is or could be feminist because our practices in astrology whether i mean i primarily practice natal astrology but whether you're practicing natal or mundane or hor- horary or um inceptional or electional astrology we are making connections we are making correlations between i think it's chris brennan's definition of, of astrology one of the definitions of astrology that he's given which is um correlating celestial objects in motion with earthly events and so which might by definition be making connections between things that are not apparent or um, thinking things together that appear to be separate. Celestial motion, life on earth, what do these things have to do with one another? And astrology is the practice, a practice, a whole tradition of practices that is built from making these connections that are not apparent, that seem to be separate. And that feels like, I don't think that on its own would make something feminist, but I do think it is in alignment with what Angela Davis describes as feminist methodologies. And when we do that, when we make this practice of forming connections, of creating correlations, um, when we do those things inside of this larger frame of attending to our differences, of taking responsibility for all of these multi-layered, interlocking, intersecting systems of oppression that shape our lives, our clients' lives, Um, when we do, when we make this practice of correlation and connection inside of these larger concerns, I think that's at the heart of astrology becoming a feminist practice. And it's also, oh, this does relate to that, that quote from Patricia Hill Collins, um, who She was writing about Black feminist thought, and she was um, contrasting um, feminist thinking to what we might think of as like patriarchal thinking, and she, uh, she described them as feminist thinking as an epistemology of connection in which truth emerges through care, in contrast with an epistemology of separation based on impersonal procedures for establishing truth. And I can feel the difference between those things in my body, but like knowledge that comes out of concern and care and connection versus knowledge that um, isn't concerned with connection, which is concerned with like going down a checklist and applying certain techniques or certain rules and saying, well, then this is what this means. And that that those are different modes of knowledge production. And this orientation towards connection I think is at the heart of my understanding of feminism and also of healing. And maybe this is, this could, this might be one of our last points. That connection is at the heart of, and it goes all the way back to, even though the healing justice movement is not reducible to feminism, it's adjacent to feminism and 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 it's been developed and created by predominantly queer, um, black and brown women and femmes. Um, And so there's there's enough of an overlap between it that it's somehow gotten absorbed into my understanding and my definition of feminism, um, which is that feminism is oriented towards healing. And part of what the the healing justice movement has taught me is that our personal healing is not separate from our collective liberation. Um, That as we do the work to dismantle structures like systemic racism, misogyny, sexism, classism, and so on, we are also hopefully, or I think we have to be doing the work of healing those broken places within ourselves. And so much of those broken places, so much, so many of these systems depend upon disconnection. Mm. And this is actually thinking that I owe to, or that I, that I direct back towards um, a queer Jewish witch named, who has a um, community-based intuitive healing practice um, named Dory Midnight, who I have learned so much from over the years, sort of at a distance. Um, and she, um, and this was in a uh, an interview on the Irresistible Podcast, formerly called the Healing Justice Podcast. Um, she's describing her healing practice, the way she works. And that she's, over the years, she's shifted through different thinking about healing, like maybe it's wholeness or maybe it's aliveness or moving towards life. And um, she talks through some of the ways in which those definitions of healing were insufficient for some of the work that she was doing. And then she starts discussing healing disconnection. And she says disconnection from ourselves ourselves disconnection from our bodies, disconnection from earth, disconnection from our tradition, disconnection from our ancestral lineages, the ways that empire culture and capitalism and white supremacy work to disconnect. That is the aim. Capitalism functions on our disconnectedness. And so can healing then look more like connecting rather than trying to get better or to relieve symptoms when sometimes that's not even possible. Um, And later she describes this as widening our net of allies. What if we can come into more and more connection? And for me, I think about that in terms of, in the consulting space, coming into connection with another person who, for that hour and a half, cares deeply. And and in an ongoing way, but just to be in that experience of connection with one another, how much healing potential that holds. Which makes me think of Mark Jones has written about how even if you don't think of yourself as a healing astrologer or a therapeutic astrologer, because I'm like I'm not a therapist, I'm not qualified or credentialed in that way, that as soon as we enter the consulting space, we've already been constellated within a counseling relationship or even a therapeutic relationship. Um, that something has the potential to be healed in that connection. But then I think following that out, it's also the connection to this. And this is really where our conversation started um, connection to the sky, the connection to that, which is bigger than us, but also the connection to the body. And this is why, like in my practice, I start with ritual meditation grounding practices and then return to the body at the end of the session, because where does all of this go? Like astrology can so easily be so cerebral and like mm-hmm. all these ideas and dates and symbols and stuff. And it's like, but where do you feel it in your body when we start talking about the ruler of your fifth house in the 12th? For example, if when I start delineating that, what do you feel in your body? Cause that's actually what it means. That's actually what that delineation is describing is your lived embodied experience of it. And so giving space in the consulting Context to feel, to feel more of what's going on in relation to this map of archetypes that the chart provides. And that's where I think real healing possibilities start to open up. People come into more connection with themselves, they come into more connection with their bodies, they come into more connection with another person, with me. Um, But also because of the ritual practices we do, they come into more connection with the land and the indigenous histories of the land and the earth. And then they come into more connection with the sky and these ancient patterns of motion that have been unfolding in excess of their lives in all directions. And their life is a part of that cycle all or these mini cycles. And they come into relationship with that cycle through through the chart, through the consultation. And when they leave is... Is some sort of um, physical or mental disease, dis-ease alleviated? I don't know. But I hope or what I feel or what I've seen in the work with others, but also with myself, is that when we live more connected in all these different ways, we are um, more in alignment with our optimal well-being. We are, it makes such a difference to move through this world Its get a little emotional. Um, to move through this world feeling that we're not actually alone so much of our suffering comes from this mm, having been convinced that we're alone that we are separate that we're isolated that we are unworthy of love and belonging and when we come into connection our love and belonging is our worthiness and belonging are no longer questions they're already there. are Actualities. I'm already. I already belong here in this connection, and I think that's the potential that astrology holds, whether or not you're even approaching it as a healing practice, because you're facilitating these connections, these correlations, which Angela Davis describes as feminist methodologies, and that we might also think of healing, uh, think of as healing practices and as as a kind of feminist praxis.
0: Mm. (laughs) I'm I'm amen to all all that last bit and especially the idea of connection because at the end of the day isn't that what people want the most it's like when you they look at studies of you know of the human um experience what we crave most is connection with one another we are social creatures and and when we have that connection when we have that that deep connection. Cause that's the thing. It's like when, when you're sitting down in that consulting space, it really is almost this shamanistic job that is, is coming under, underway because there's a combination of energies that are, that are at play. And then when you're really open, which is back to that feminist principle principle of holding space of like opening up of like letting energy move through, you know, that is the greatest reward because I'll tell you what. When I get out of a session that is just, you know, life changing for someone, it changes my life in the process. This isn't a one way street. This is not a one way street. This is, you know, this the uh, a blending of energies uh, in that that connective space. And and I, I get it. You know, I cry with clients all the time because I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like part of it has to do with their story and part of it's my own experience through that and then half you know a majority of that is actually the beauty in the connection that's being made because that is breathtaking mm-hmm. um, when you're really in it and, and feeling it with another person. And so yes.
1: <laughs> yeah I, I agree. I think that in this work we are um, we have the potential to heal one another and ourselves um, that's why like I'm so interested in it as a way that we live our lives together that's what I mean by like in the consultation space we can practice ways of relating of coming into right relation that's healing for for our clients, but also healing for us, that those aren't mutually exclusive. And it reminds me of Demetra George. I think she writes this in Astrology and the Authentic Self that as astrologers, we don the mantle of healers. Um, and I think that if we recognize that, and maybe this is um, what started me thinking about astrology and feminism in the first place, is if we recognize that astrology can be a practice of freedom and healing, and I think that it can, I think we've hopefully covered some ways in which it, it can, it holds that potential, then clearly we have, we as astrologers have roles to play in the ongoing work of justice and liberation in this moment where there's all of this uprising um, calling for a different kind of world, a world that we can't even imagine Yet, by which I mean justice. We haven't we haven't yet lived in a world organized by justice. So we're calling for the end of certain kinds of worlds built on domination and exploitation and oppression. And we're we're reaching towards this world that we don't even really, we can't even really yet imagine. And so many people, I'm seeing this all over social media, especially white folks, asking, but what can I do? Like what's my role here? And I feel so clear that there's many roles. And we as astrologers, this is part of movement, or it can be that if we approach our astrology as practices of, of freedom and healing, that we are contributing to um, bringing into being the kinds of world that we want to live in um, for ourselves and for one another.
0: I amen to that. Amen to that. Because as we heal ourselves, we hear it's it's you know it's all we. <laughs> I don't even need to say it. We've already talked about it enough, but it's, it's true. You know, when, when we heal ourselves, we heal the world in the process. Yep. And that's, yep. you know, and that's, a, and that don't get tricked to think you need to heal the world before you heal yourself. Because that's, I, I think that is a, a backwards way of, of looking at it. I, it's very important to be connected with the world and be active in what's going on, but don't, um, just, um, you know, disconnect from the fact that it all starts within. And so if you you want to do the most important thing in the start of this whole process, you know, we got to do it from the inside out. And so make um, that a point of of, of practice and your own personal healing and, and, and activism in, in, you know, changing the world is just starting with what needs to be uprooted within yourself. And that's a lifelong process. It's not something we're going to wake up tomorrow and be like, okay, I'm healed. Um, (laughs) no, it's a, it's, it's a journey that we're all on, but that is a conscious part of, of the process. And so, um, and Lord knows I work on myself every day. I'm like, sometimes I'm like, give yourself a rest. You've, you've done enough. Um, but all right. So Michael- I'll share two quick thoughts yes. that came up when you said that. Give, These give, are give, give it. Give us our ra- our wrapping up our wrapping well, up it, thoughts.
1: What you said about healing ourselves and healing the world, it yeah. made me think of a quote from Grace Lee Boggs. Um, and I'm mean, going to get it. it this will be a paraphrase because I don't have the book in front of me. Um, but in order to change the world, we have to change ourselves or we change ourselves in order to change the world. Um, and so that's wisdom that comes from Grace Lee Boggs. But then also, and this is like, I guess, just a little synchronicity. Um, so I write daily astrology posts, and I have since August of last year. So we're coming up on a year. But what I And I quote people constantly because feminist citationality. And for today, what I posted last night for this morning, um, comes from Audre Lorde, and she wrote... The true focus of revolutionary change is never merely the oppressive situations which we seek to escape, but that piece of the oppressor which is planted deep within each of us and which knows only the oppressor's tactics, the oppressor's relationships. And so part of what that left me thinking about, and this was in response to the moon moving into oppositions to Pluto and Jupiter, That and Pluto and Jupiter both retrograde in Capricorn at this moment of like, what does it mean to come into opposition with the old power structures, with power structures that are moving back towards the way things were? How do we look at the piece of that which that lives within our own bodies and our emotional lives and uproot that seed of oppression, which then becomes the opportunity for freedom and liberation? Which I'm correlating a little bit with Jupiter in that kind of tight moving into their conjunction. and so, yeah, the work of healing ourselves, healing the world, addressing, doing the inner work of addressing the oppressor that lives within at the same time that we are doing the outer work of dismantling systems of oppression that are shaping our lives and even more importantly, the lives of folks who are, are most marginalized.
0: Mm. And why it's so apropos that the timing of this episode is going to air on the day that Jupiter and Pluto conjunct. Really? (laughs) Yes. Great. So if you're listening to this on the Monday that it comes out, you know, take those take those words and, and dive them deep because, uh, this is that, this is that halfway point. This is that halfway point of that Jupiter Pluto dance. And what is dictating this metamorphic quality that is the cocoon of 2020. Mm-hmm. And we are at this turning point, um, of this, you know, and like, like we've said the whole time, this is lifelong, journey, not just our lives, (laughs) millennia, thousands of years. But in this context of time, we are at a very significant turning point. And why am I mean, I mean, I'm I'm very pleased with this episode, number one, but I'm so excited that it was, you know, it seems just well-timed within what we're going through, um, you know, internally and externally uh, as people in the, you know, in humanity. So, yes. All right. Well, so Michael, where, where can people find you? What, where, what do you got going on? Tell us.
1: (laughs) Um, easiest places to find me online are my website, which is michaeljmorris.co. Um, I am on Instagram and Facebook at co witchcraft offerings. Um, and I'm on Twitter, um, mainly for like Astro Twitter, but also, um, yeah, but also for academic stuff um, under Morris Michael J. Um, and then I don't, I can't remember the date of the Jupiter-Pluto conjunction at the moment. So I don't know when this is airing. Um, what's the date? The ninth. the 29th okay. of June. June. Great. Oh, perfect. Um, then I am, then there's still time. Um, I am slotted to give a couple of presentations at the queer astrology conference, which is happening online, um, July 10th through 12th, 2020. And you can learn more about that at qac.queerastrology.com. Um, yeah. And so that's, that's a public offering that I have going. Um, coming up soon. And then the daily writing, which I don't know how long that'll go except for it's gone for almost a year. And I really love it because it's a, and again, it's that idea of access Um, that I think everyone should have, should is a strong word, but I think I'm going to use it. (laughs) Everyone should have access to astrology as a resource for supporting our lives and making meaning as well as our personal and collective healing and liberation. And even with a sliding scale, even with some free sessions made available, some people can't access a consult. And so the the daily writing is a way that I make astrology and like this podcast, making astrology available to people, um, that depends less on resources, like Mm -hmm. probably you need a computer or a smartphone. So there's some access stuff to getting on Instagram or to listening to a podcast, um, but it's more available than, than a consult, a consultation. Um, So that's, those are the kind of daily ways people can find me. Um, Where can people find you, Mel?
0: Well, uh, you can find me at energeticprinciples.com where I'm going to have all of Michael's um, you know, website, the Instagram, uh, access to a uh, link to the Queer Astrology Conference, all that that you've listed um, and so that you, if you have a direct link and you've already listened to the podcast and you know where to find me, you can just go there and it'll take you straight to michael um and of course i do my patreon forecast i do forecast i do my audio cast through patreon these days so you can find out more at patreon.com backslash energetic principles um, and I actually was just invited to do a, uh, a summit with Christina Caudill on uh, the astrology of purpose and power, which is going to be the weekend of August 7th through 9th uh, during Leo season, uh, which is uh, as the Scorpio rising, you know, Leo season's always my favorite season because, you know, the sun is high at the top of the chart. Um, and so I'm very excited about this and she's going to have more information on it. Even Kitty's excited. She's running around getting crazy, Um, which, hey, I'm talking about Leo season, no wonder. Um, But yes, so the astrology of purpose and power. So bookmark August 7th through the 9th. I think there's going to be more than uh, about 20 um, uh, woman presenters that are going to be part of this. Um, And yeah, so I'm very excited uh, to be a part of it. And so just keep a lookout it's all launching as this time, you know, the podcast comes out. So specifics will be weaned out over time. <laughs> all right, now, so if you enjoyed our discussion here, because uh, there was a lot of eye-opening, juicy tidbits, my, you know, like my mind went so many places, I know that yours did too. So share it with a friend, spread the good word, because getting this, you know, that's very feminine by nature is to share and to nurture other people with experience. Um, So spread the good word, uh, leave a review if you'd like to on wherever you listen to it. Um, And yeah, I mean, I guess that's my spiel for that. But I really want to thank you, Michael, for joining me. Actually, I found you through uh, Diana's talk Mm. on NORWAC, because she had referenced uh, one of your dailies, And so I was like, oh, let me go look what's going on here. And I saw your videos where you were dancing with the planets and I was, yes, yes. And I just reached out to you immediately then. (laughs) Um, So I'm so glad you have joined me to be a guest. And I do hope you come and join me again on another topic because I would love that.
1: I would love that too. Thanks so much for having me and for uh, holding space for for a conversation that, as you said, feels even more important right now. Um, It's been a real honor to be in dialogue with you.
0: Likewise, and we will do it again. Well, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We really appreciate it. And as always, may the stars be with you.